0: Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast, my name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. I'm going to have a slightly shorter format for you today, we're going to do our news roundup and a question of the week, we're not going to do a third segment and this is in part an experiment in preparation for some changes that we're planning to make to the podcast in the next couple of weeks haven't decided exactly what the timing is going to be yet, but we felt that it would be good to kind of shorten the format down a bit and so we're going to play around with some stuff too, there's a possibility the the one that we're really considering most strongly right now is to sort of split the news roundup and question the week parts into two separate elements that would actually publish as separate episodes each week. So I haven't quite figured out exactly how that will work, what the timing will be, and the exact sort of composition of those. But that's an idea that we have right now. If you think that's a horrible idea, let us know on Twitter. Um, But otherwise, uh, that's kind of the direction we're heading in. We think that'll be good for two reasons. One is It'll shorten down the individual episodes, make them a bit more digestible. You know, an hour, which is what we've kind of typically had lately, is quite a lot to digest. Not everybody has time for that. So we want to shorten it down. But it also means if you like the back and forth format of the news roundup, but are not as fond of the sort of monologue of the question of the week, uh, you can choose to listen to one or the other. If you like the deep dive of the question of the week, you can listen to that. And not listen to the news roundup. So that's the way that we're thinking of going. As I say, give us feedback if you have views on that. We're probably going to be rolling something like that out in the next couple of weeks here. Uh, it'll all still live, I think, under that Beyond Devices podcast umbrella. So you won't need to subscribe to any new podcasts or anything. I think we'll just publish them separately under that heading. So look out for that over the next couple of weeks. And don't be surprised if the, the format or the, the descriptions or whatever in your podcast app change slightly. Uh, So today we do have a news roundup up front. We have three news items, as usual. We have the Intel Mobile Eye acquisition that was announced a few days ago. Uh, We'll be talking about some new details that emerged around Hulu's pay TV over-the-top offering that they're going to be launching soon. And then we're going to have two stories about voice assistant technology. Firstly, Google Home playing ads for Beauty and the Beast on people's devices today. And then secondly, Alexa, Amazon's Alexa arriving on the iPhone through the Amazon shopping app. After that, we'll move on to our question of the week. And this week, the question is, what is the state of AI or artificial intelligence? So we'll talk about definitions. We'll talk about whether it's being overused or not, which is an argument that's been made in the the news and various opinion articles lately. talk about what it's being used for, and uh, we'll touch a little bit on who might be ahead or whether we can even make a determination about that. So that's kind of the rest of the episode, and then we'll wrap up, as usual, with our weekly pick. Uh, So I'll be handling the question of the week duties this week, and Aaron will have that recommendation in the weekly pick section. So to kick off our news roundup, first off, this uh, announcement that Intel is going to be acquiring uh, Israeli company Mobileye, which makes sensors for cars and and specifically uh, sensors that can be used eventually for uh, supporting autonomous driving systems. It's buying it for $15 billion, one of the largest ever acquisitions at Intel, I think the second largest after Altera, and then one of the biggest ever acquisitions of an Israeli technology company. uh, Obviously prompted by the growth of the autonomous vehicle and autonomous driving space and Intel's desire to get into that. Aaron, did you have a, a sort of take on that news this week?
1: Yeah, I can't comment on whether or not it was a smart acquisition specifically, but I think it's smart for Intel to be paying more attention to what's coming down the line as far as I mean, obviously, desktop class or laptop class semiconductors are not really all that much of a growth business anymore. And so it's good to see Intel moving in that direction, it, it, you know, moving into future markets like autonomous cars. I, I think the reality, though, is, and I think you even said this on Twitter, um, referencing this announcement, pretty much every major tech company is building a play in this space now. And it's hard to, it's so early to know who's going to win. You know, and who's gonna, who's gonna actually have success in this in this market? Um, but I think it's interesting from Intel's perspective is that this was not an artificial intelligence, you know, uh, direction or purchase. I think it's smart to be in sensors, and I think this is a technology, a necessary technology for autonomous driving that is still underappreciated. By um, by most people, that we're going to have to have really sophisticated sensors. The Tesla crash that got a lot of publicity a few months ago was a sensor related issue, not necessarily an AI issue. And so, so yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's oh, as. Conceptually, it seems like a really smart move. (laughs) I guess the devil's in the details.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and the piece that I linked to on this on Tech Narratives was, uh, didn't mention NVIDIA once, and I thought that was kind of interesting because NVIDIA is really the chip maker that seems to have uh, got the furthest, the fastest, if you like, within the connected car space, and, and Intel seems to be behind. Qualcomm's done somewhat well there. Intel seems to have kind of struggled a bit. It's had a few deals here and there, but it seems to be kind of struggling there as it has in some of the other newer areas. Uh, And yet, as you point out, it needs to kind of do better in some of these new areas because PCs kind of stagnant, hasn't done well in mobile. Uh, well that's maybe starting to change now with some of the inroads it's making with the iPhone um, but it clearly needs to do well in some of the newer opportunities and connected cars are one of those. Uh, Mobileye obviously doesn't get it any further in terms of chips it's not a chip company it's a sensor company but you know it's it's basically putting together kind of the eyes and the brain of the car here with Intel supplying the brain and Mobileye the eyes so it's a, it's a good fit in that sense you know it's a big commitment obviously to this space uh, but Mobileye is one of the big kind of companies in this space the nice thing is it's Uh, Fast-growing company it's profitable company, you know, this isn't some uh, Thing some business that's going to drag Intel down financially It's actually going to be quite useful to have as part of the overall business So it seems like a really smart acquisition to me Let's talk about these new Hulu details and you spotted these I've been kind of uh, on the phone all day And so you'd you'd seen this and I hadn't so Aaron can you talk us through some of these new details that emerged about this This is Hulu's over-the-top pay TV offering that's supposed to be launching soon.
1: Yeah, and so there's been very little detail about what Hulu is going to be offering, and these details come from the Hulu website, and they launched a new pr- promo video and, and an updated website to kind of describe what, how the service is going to work. There are a bunch of details missing, though. I, what we do know now that we didn't know before today um, is that, obviously, this will include a live TV offering, so it's not just the sort of delayed replays that you get now with the Hulu subscription. Um, but you'll get access to live TV and it's a TV anywhere, um, strategy. So the idea is you'll be able to watch on your devices, you know, on your mobile phone when you're in a car, but, you know, hopefully not driving. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but unless you've got the Intel thing, I was going to say a nice Intel
0: uh, mobile I car that yeah, drives right, itself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: That's right. But the idea is you'll be able to watch it on tablets, on, on mobile phones, on your computers. And, and I assumed on your, you know, TV connected devices, Um, In fact, it can support uh, multiple streams uh, at once. So if you have one account, you can get multiple live TV streams. I think they said they're going to have two of them. Um, They're also doing a couple other cool things. One is there is going to be a a watch later feature, essentially an online version of a DVR, which is great. Um, And that's a feature that in these other competing over-the-top offerings is still, you know, is still not common or ubiquitous and so I th- it'll be interesting to see how Hulu approaches that and then um I think another really cool thing that is going to set them apart is they're taking the profile feature that's already built into Hulu so you know if I if I'm watching Hulu I use my account instead of my wife's or my kids and um, they're extending that to the live TV offering which means that you know whatever recordings I've I've scheduled I'll just see mine I won't see everybody else's and and i think that personalization feature is going to be a cool distinguishing factor as well What we don't know we don't know the channel lineup we don't know the launch date um we don't know pricing tiers although it seems like forty dollars is a is is um is probably where it's going to land um and so if you're already a hulu subscriber then really that's an extra $32 is the way you're thinking about that decision. And I think that'll be an important math, actually. And if you've got a competing service, you're going to be fighting an uphill battle against the people who already, you know, with the people who already have Hulu as a service. So it's it's definitely one of the more promising ones um, of these over-the-top live TV um, streaming services that I, I think we've seen yet.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And, I, you know, we were talking about this before we started recording, but I really like Hulu a lot. I use it a lot. I like the interface. It's mostly good. It has some weird quirks on the Apple TV where the voice search that works in every other app doesn't work properly in Hulu. But other than that, I think it's a nice interface on the various devices where it operates. It, it runs smoothly and quickly. I love the fact that you don't have to watch ads if you're willing to pay for the ad-free offering. Um, you know, it feels like a really important thing that, that a lot of these services are gonna have going forward. Um, And, you know, I subscribe to a couple of different over-the-top pay TV services. I'm not particularly happy with either of them right now. And so I'd love something to replace those and kind of be integrated with Hulu as well so that you had that combination of the kind of on-demand aspect and the live aspect. Um, You know, the $40 price point you mentioned seems... Entirely realistic, you know, it really feels like the sort of 30 to $40 bracket is where most companies are aiming with these things. Uh, that does mean they have to sacrifice something. And so that big question is gonna be what doesn't make it into Hulu that's in some of, you know, traditional pay TV services. You know, obviously it's owned by, you know, Disney, Fox, Comcast, uh, and Time Warner. So you'd expect a lot of their content to be in the live offering. Um, that covers a lot of bases, it's missing CBS. And so that's a big question is whether CBS, it's not an owner will be in there and it's various networks Um, But you know looks really good the the DVR stuff as you say seems a lot more complete at least as described on the website than what's available from some of the other providers today? So that should be good, too, and it's it's the nice thing about it is it it provides the same benefits of DVR But without necessarily the hassle of actually running a DVR so it's basically you click on stuff to save it and that's it so you know, if that works as simply as it sounds, then that's actually a lot nicer than saying, please record this show for me and keep it on this place. And then I have to delete, you know, it's just saving a show. I'll watch it later. That's really what you want. Um, so that feels like a good innovation as well. So that, it, all, it seems quite promising to me.
1: Yeah, I, I think the only little, um, hanging question out there that we haven't already mentioned is how it's going to manage local broadcasts. Yes. Um, and that's, of course, the big challenge for all of these services is yeah. trying to figure out how to get local affiliates programming mm-hmm. to the people who live in those areas. And that I, you know, I won't be surprised if that is not part of what Hulu offers because they tend to work with you know, the large content providers and mm-hmm. haven't really done anything local. And it's, it's hard to imagine that they will have fixed that problem when nobody else has yet.
0: Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I I don't know if you've noticed this. When you watch stuff on Hulu from one of the broadcast networks, it does put up a little logo in the corner that's not just a generic sort of Fox logo, but it's a Fox 13 or whatever your local affiliate is. So they do have at least some sort of ability to get a local stream, which makes me wonder whether they might do better than some of the others on some of the localization. But uh, yeah, this is a challenge with YouTube TV, for example, is not going to launch except in areas where they've got the owned owned and... Operated affiliates from the broadcast network, so that is a big challenge and obviously a lot of sports and stuff is on those local uh, Broadcast networks, so how they handle that's going to be really kind of critical yeah. Well, let's move on to the third news roundup story Which is two stories really about uh, virtual voice assistant type devices for the home Google home and an echo and really about the Alexa platform that kind of sits behind echo uh, There's a story today that the Google home devices uh, today were Uh, playing people what's essentially an ad for the Beauty and the Beast live-action film that debuts this week. Uh, So if you requested your daily briefing before it got started with all the stuff you really wanted to hear, it basically played you this ad. Um, The other story is that Amazon's announcing the Alexa functionality is going to be available on the iPhone, but it won't be in the Alexa app. It will be in the Amazon shopping app, which is kind of interesting. But... There's a certain logic to that. That's an app people probably already have on their phones and probably dip into more often than the Alexa app. And uh, so there's a certain logic there. Um, Google Home playing ads. And they've I should make clear they've denied this is an ad, but you know said basically it's a message from our partners, which is kind of like TV companies in the 50s saying now is a message from our sponsor. You know, like it is an ad. Uh, you know. It, it, in every sense. So I don't know why they're denying that it is an ad, but it seems like about the most stupid thing that Google could do, because it just plays into every stereotype about Google, which is that every new device they get in your hands, they start trying to sell you stuff. Um, That feels like a mistake. The Alexa thing on iPhone is interesting. not sure how how successful that'll be. But Aaron, why don't you have a go at that one for us?
1: Well, I think the biggest problem there is the integration difference between Siri and Alexa. And it's gonna take not just, I mean, i don't know how it's going to work in the amazon shopping app but you'll have to at least open the app and then from there you'll probably have to tap one other button to make alexa listen to you yeah and um and that is is silly two little taps create a ton of user friction compared to siri right where you don't even have to push a button you can just say hey siri and all of a sudden you're you're getting access to that i I, i'm curious how the how the plugins and everything will work um Mm -hmm. uh, and and if they will work um, I it, I don't know. I just I have so many questions, and and implementation is going to matter a lot. And so I think that's where this is hanging right now. Um, yeah, I we've talked before about how Amazon has this struggle of not being on mobile with Alexa, mm-hmm. and they didn't seem to really have a path for that. Right. Um, this I guess starts in that direction, but it doesn't feel like much of a path. I I, I think the integration of the of the voice assistant is 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 the most important aspect of it for the majority of users. They're going to use what's built in. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I don't know. We'll see. I I mean, unless they're baking in features to Alexa that truly do just beat the pants off of Google assistant or Siri. Um, it's, you know, it's hard to imagine Amazon having much of a place with their voice assistant on mobile yet. Yeah. As far as the Google thing goes, I totally agree with you. I just think, you know i mean they're travi- they uh, google's always happy to experiment and try try stuff like this and you know they have people measuring uh, responses to this idea but i think it's a pretty terrible idea to advertise to people through that voice assistant especially because this isn't a purchase that you that you wanted subsidized by advertising i mean right. if you bought a google home you had no intention of it being an advertising source yep. i mean it's not like where you know you can buy a kindle ad supported or not ad supported kind of a thing this is Mm -hmm. this is this is a this is a violation of trust in my opinion Mm -hmm. when when people don't when people don't expressly open themselves up to advertising you should not be inserting yourself with advertising
0: Absolutely. And especially if you sell people a device with the premise that you've paid for it, now it's yours. Exactly. And there's no mention of advertising. You can't do a bait and switch on people afterwards. And I think, as you say, that's a a breach of trust. And I think absolutely plays, frankly, into Amazon's hands and into anybody else's hands who wants to compete with Google. It's like, we are the one that won't play you ads, basically. It's the easiest competitive vector that you suddenly have to play with. You know, you could always argue, oh, Google will probably eventually play you ads. But even if that was true, you'd have hoped they'd have waited a good long time before they even tried that. So to see them doing it within months of a launch when they've got tiny market share and really need to do everything they can to, to grow that market share just seems crazy to me. Yeah. Um, but I'm totally in agreement with you on the Alexa stuff. It, it's technically, yes, now it's on your iPhone, great, but it's an, a screen unlock, uh, navigate to the app, open the app, navigate to Alexa, press a button, you know, it's got to be at least five steps away relative to you know holding down on the home button or double tapping your AirPods or whatever you normally trigger Siri, uh, or even saying "Hey Siri" for that matter. Um, you know, it's, it's that lack of integration is really going to kill it, I think. So I can't see this being uh, popular at all, uh, and really working for them. I, I still think the prospects for Alexa on smartphones are much better on Android, where you can at least select a different default integration for for an assistant. Right. All right, well let's move on to our question of the week. And as I mentioned at the top, uh, we're talking about AI and specifically kind of what's the state of AI. And so I've been kind of doing some reading about this. This is prompted in part by a couple of different pieces that I read recently that seem to suggest that there was essentially AI washing for want of a better term going on, that people are sort of painting everything as AI just to kind of get attention. And we'll talk about that a bit during the course of this conversation, but really just kind of wanted to sort of take the temperature of what is the state of AI um, and kind of where are things? You know, are those accusations true? Essentially.
1: Well, and I'm one of those people, Ian, that is um, more on the side of the AI washing. I mean, how is it different than computers just doing what they've always done? So let's start with that question. Can you define the boundaries of AI in a way that helps us uh, have more focus?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think I think definitions are really important here. The problem is that there there are no accepted universal definitions and. Um, and that's a big part of the problem here is it means different things to different people even people working within the field and that makes it particularly challenging to, to kind of come up with some sort of official definition that, that people can be happy with and that people won't argue about um, you know essentially and it really began as a field back in the 1950s and so there is uh, the history here is quite interesting I won't go into all the details but uh, there was a, something called the Dartmouth Summer Research Project on Artificial Intelligence in 1956. So 60 odd years ago, a group of computer scientists essentially got together at Dartmouth uh, to talk about what was coined artificial intelligence in preparation for that sort of project. It was sort of they, they sought a grant and then lasted for a few weeks during the course of the summer and basically talked about various ideas about what they the artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence kind of emerged as a term because there were a whole range of different terms floating around at the time, and they each connoted a specific approach to the field, uh, which not everybody agreed on. And so artificial intent- intelligence was intended to be sort of a neutral term to describe a whole set of different things that were all going on at the time. And and that's been part of the challenge ever since, is that AI really describes a whole set of very disjointed and fragmented technologies that aren't being developed in any kind of coherent way there are lots of different attempts to tackle different problems they all sort of sit within this umbrella of ai but that's again why nobody really owns the term uh, and nobody really can even claim to own the term because lots of people work on ai but they mostly work in some little corner of it rather than ai as a whole um that that particular summer project back in 1956 uh, had a proposal uh, and that proposal kind of provided the first definition and uh, it, it says the study is to proceed on the basis of the conjecture that every aspect of learning or any other feature of intelligence can in principle be so precisely described that a machine can be made to simulate it. And so the, the objective was basically trying to find ways to, to make that happen. Um, since then a lot of other people have defined AI in, in different ways. Uh, one of the better definitions that I found was AI is the mimicking of human thought and cognitive processes to solve complex problems automatically. AI uses techniques for writing computer code to represent and manipulate knowledge. Different techniques mimic the different ways that people think and reason. AI applications can be either standalone software such as decision support software or embedded within larger software or hardware systems. And so the the basic idea is that artificial intelligence is anything that sort of mimics human intelligence. And there are a lot of different components to that. I kind of used these um, sort of biological analogies earlier in talking about Intel and mobile eye, you know, Intel being the brain, mobile eye being the eyes, but you naturally fall back on these things when you're talking about mimicking human behavior, you talk about kind of sensory inputs, and then you talk about the processing uh, that happens behind that. And really AI is about anything that does that. Um, within AI, there are various other sort of terms that are worth defining as well, uh, but AI itself is really about machines mimicking some aspect of human intelligence. So sensory inputs, making sense of that in some way and providing some kind of output, something that can help to solve a problem. Um, Machine learning is sort of a subset. Machine learning really goes a bit deeper. And I think people often use these terms interchangeably. I think I've been guilty of doing that in the past. But machine learning really refers to the ability of computers to automatically acquire new knowledge So learning from past experiences or past cases, from the computer's own experiences or from exploration. So it's about allowing the computer to get better at a task over time. And it's not quite the same as AI. AI is about being trained to recognize patterns and so on and then kind of work on those on on an ongoing basis. Machine learning goes deeper than that. And then neural networks is another one of those um, terms that gets bandied around a lot um, and it's really again about mimicking the way the human brain works and so using simple processing units which is sort of analogous to the neurons and then you go through various layers of that and processing and so on and oftentimes you have an input from one layer of processing that feeds another and feeds another and so if you go far enough down that you get deep learning which kind of is, refers to multi-layered learning so there's lots of definitions and lots of terms that are used around here but they're all sort of interconnected in that sense.
1: So is the term being overused then? Because that's where I started at the beginning. But this sounds much more expansive, I think, than I was appreciating.
0: Yeah, and I, there's one particular piece that uh, I wrote, uh, read rather, about 10 days ago. Uh, the Atlantic published it. It was a guy called Ian Bogost. Um, and he basically said, artificial intelligence has become meaningless. It's often just a fancy name for a computer program. And so this piece is pretty... Snarky, basically, about the whole concept of AI, and uh, and the author quotes a friend of his who I guess is an expert on this kind of stuff, and he says, "Well, how would you define it? What should it mean?" And and this uh, researcher uh, who works on AI said, "Making computers act like they do in the movies," and that's kind of the whole premise of this article. Is basically, we were promised. This AI where computers are basically as good as human beings and they pretend to be human beings and do things that human beings do and they, they feel and, and, and make sense of the world around them and all this kind of stuff. And the reality is that you know AI can't do the sort of simple reasoning and processing that a five-year-old does at a general level. Um, you know, so yes, AI doesn't at all meet that definition of making computers act like they do in the movies. Um, and won't be there for a very long time, but they are extremely good at certain tasks that they've been trained to do. His point is, you know, AI is what the movies show us, and therefore anything short of that shouldn't be called AI, but that doesn't actually fit with any of the sort of more formal definitions that I found in my research this week. Uh, The reality is that if you look at AI in a strict sense, lots of the stuff that's described as AI, and actually a lot of stuff that isn't, it's truly AI, and, and so the term isn't being overused, and actually within the AI field, there's something called the AI effect. And what it describes is the tendency to stop describing things as AI, even though they are AI, once they become commonplace enough. And so the the best example of that is OCR, this optical character recognition. So the fact that computers can scan text and make sense of it and turn it into words, essentially, that's become so commonplace at this point that we don't think of that as being AI anymore, even though it fits the formal definitions perfectly. It's Computers taking a sensory input, making sense of it, and achieving some kind of result that they've been trained to achieve off the back of that. You know, human beings can scan text and make words out of it. Computers can do the same thing that's totally AI, and yet we don't describe it in that way anymore. And so so AI researchers talk about this phenomenon as the AI effect. And this one particular description I found of it is quite a nice summary. At the outset of a project, the goal is to entice a performance from machines in some designated area that everyone agrees would require intelligence if done by a human. If the project fails, it becomes a target of derision to be pointed at by the skeptics as an example of the absurdity of the idea that AI could be possible. If it succeeds, on the other hand, with the process demystified and its inner workings laid bare as lines of prosaic computer code, the subject is dismissed as not really all that intelligent after all. So the idea is basically, if it succeeds, then we stop calling it AI. We say, well, it's just a computer program, which is kind of the point of that article that I was just reading from. Or if it fails, we just say, well, we told you you couldn't do it. You know, AI is impossible. And so the great irony is that we never really have any AI by that definition, because either it fails And we just say AI is impossible or it succeeds and we stop calling it AI. And so there's an argument to be made that, in fact, we're underusing the term AI. And people in the field often do that because for a long time, if you could describe what you were doing in academia as AI, you couldn't get funding because it had a really bad reputation. And the irony is that today we have lots of really successful AI going on, and yet people are still sort of downplaying some of that. Um, There definitely has been some sort of AI washing. Um, There was another piece... Uh, Somebody at Bloomberg did this interesting analysis of earnings calls over the past sort of nine years or so and discovered that the number of mentions of Artificial intelligence had gone from sort of basically zero in 2008 up to sort of 200 a quarter or something in 2016 so there definitely has been a rapid increase in references to AI on earnings calls people definitely want to tie themselves to the term but in fairness, in many of those cases, what they're describing really is reasonably described as artificial intelligence. That's not to say that most of those things are reasonably described as machine learning, which some of them often are as well. So there definitely is some overapplication of that term, I think. Um, but AI itself is, is mostly being applied correctly, despite all the sort of naysaying that's going on at the moment.
1: So... Uh... I mean, AI is having a moment, though, right? I mean, it's having a moment of renewed public interest, but I wonder if it has more to do with it penetrating new domains where it didn't before. I mean, when we talk about AI these days, the things that come to mind are uh, like artificial assistants, like Google Assistant, Siri, that we were just talking about, or autonomous driving, um, which involves a lot of AI processes, like vision and all these other things that that are hard, but that we're getting better at. I mean, is that really what's going on? Are we just breaking into new areas? I mean, what is AI being used for now that's causing all of this renewed um, interest in the in the term?
0: Yeah, I think it's a good question because um, there are so many different fields where it is being used today. And as I say, I don't think it's an overuse of the term to say that either. Um, the interesting thing is that When it comes to consumer services, it typically isn't described as being that way, except perhaps in a press release. And so, you know, there's lots of stuff, as you say, Siri and various other things, the Google Assistant, obviously, um, you know, Google Photos and the way that that does uh, recognition of subjects within photographs and that kind of thing, the way that Apple does facial recognition within its various photo apps. You know, these are all AI, but the, the product probably doesn't describe any aspect of itself as AI. And I think that's right. I think, you know, realistically, especially when it comes to consumer applications, companies shouldn't be describing what they're doing as AI or machine learning. They should simply be saying, this is what it does. Isn't that great, basically? And so in that sense, companies could be sort of adopting the the old mantra from the movie making industry, which is show, don't tell. So in the movie making industry, if you spend the whole time having characters explain what's going on, that's really boring and doesn't make for a very compelling movie at all. But if you show the development of the story, if you show what's happening and, and do as little telling as possible, that's actually much more compelling. And that's really a good rule of thumb for consumer technology companies is it may well be AI, it may well be machine learning, it may well be that you have developed some incredibly clever technology. But from a consumer perspective, it doesn't matter unless it's really useful unless it provides some meaningful benefit. And so, you know, I think the fact that it's underplayed a little bit in consumer technology is actually a good thing because those terms really have no business being in marketing around consumer services. Um, But there's lots of them. The the virtual assistants that we use, the photo recognition that happens, you know, Facebook's increasingly using AI to digest the contents of video. Uh, That's a lot harder than pictures because obviously there's a lot of different frames to go through but they're using it to recognize what's happening with the video within a video, even if the video doesn't have any kind of descriptive caption around it. And then they can tell, okay, this is a movie about cats. Well, you liked other videos about cats on Facebook. You'll probably like this one as well. So even though nobody has ever told Facebook this is a video about cats, it can kind of recognize that and serve it up as a suggested video to you. So there's lots of that kind of thing going on. Um, one of the more interesting things is Google in particular, and, and other parts of Google, uh, the broader alphabet family, I should say, are using it to solve all kinds of interesting medical problems, for example. So uh, diagnosing conditions based on various types of medical scans, for example, whether it's looking at x-rays or MRIs or other scans, uh, diagnosing conditions much better in some cases than human beings can. There's lots of applications of this. And some of these are, you know, very close to kind of commercial applications. Some of them are mostly just proofs of concept and, and applications of broad sort of machine learning and AI technology that can then be applied to something that that has some commercial application or can be monetized in some way. Um, but there are lots and lots of these things out there and, and they're going to continue to grow as time goes by. So um, lots of applications. I think one of the other interesting aspects is uh, that AI and machine learning are being uh, democratized, and that's a word that Microsoft has used a lot, and Satya Adela, the CEO of Microsoft, has talked a lot about democratizing AI. Uh, interestingly, Google, at its big cloud event uh, last week, started using that same term as well, and in doing some searching this afternoon, found a lot of other examples of where people are kind of borrowing that term. And what these companies mean by that is they may be very good at machine learning and AI internally, they may use it in their own customer-facing products and services, Where it really gets interesting is when you package that up and make it available to anybody who wants to use it. And so Amazon does this, Google does this, Microsoft does it. Uh, Lots of companies out there are starting to take that AI machine learning capability, package it up, and then make it available as either infrastructure or a service or a set of tools that other companies can use to digest their own data sets, to train on video or images or whatever. And so there's a real sort of spread in that sense. And that then is going to lead to basically unlimited applications of AI going forward because the tools will just be available to anybody who's willing to sort of pay to access them. Um, and so, you know, that that's another interesting area. And we're going to see more and more of that kind of thing. Um, and you know it's being used obviously in cars today as well. I mean, I could go on and on with this list, but you get the point. That this is really any place where computers are taking in some kind of sensory information, whether it's images, whether it's video, whether it's temperature, whether it's any other kind of sensory information, making sense of it in a way that it's been trained to do in order to produce some kind of desired outputs. That's AI, and so it's really all around us in that broad sense, and and it's going to just continue to be used for more and more stuff going forward
1: well see that's really interesting to me because the the way the conversations are happening today again because of the consumer facing aspect of this which in some ways is not appropriate and in other ways it is when you think about the microsoft example you gave and the idea of democratizing ai there's a there's a narrative going on that some companies are winning in ai and some companies are losing that some are ahead and some are behind but but based on the diversity of everything you've just described, is that really the right way for us to be thinking about it at this stage?
0: Yeah, I think the biggest problem is there's just no way to tell because so much of this stuff's happening behind closed doors and really, as I say, what what counts is how you put it to work in the service of customers. Um, and so, you know, Apple doesn't tend to talk a lot about this stuff. And there was one event a year ago or so when Apple did mention the term deep learning several times, they seemed to kind of recognize other people were talking about this and assuming that, and, and therefore sort of observers were assuming that Apple wasn't doing any of this stuff just because they never talked about it. And I think they, they'd really taken that message that I mentioned about showing and not telling to heart. They don't talk about it because it's not really relevant, but they recognize that they were starting to get a reputation for being behind in this area. So they did start talking about some of these techniques and, and technologies and so on that they are working on. But the problem is, you know, realistically, companies are all working on lots of different stuff and they're not gonna tell us all the stuff they're working on. Uh, you know, Apple in particular has long been secretive around this stuff. And that's actually made it challenging to recruit because Uh, People who work in AI often come from academia where they're used to publishing papers about all the clever stuff they figured out and not being able to do that at Apple was a barrier to hiring and so they actually changed their policy and started allowing some of their AI researchers to publish their research still and first paper came out from people working at Apple late last year and I haven't seen a lot of fuss about it since but that's kind of a change in culture that's helped to address that perception there. Google's obviously working on lots of stuff, as I say, other alphabet companies also. Microsoft is working on this sort of democratization, but it's also baking AI into lots of other stuff. And I saw an analysis at one point about patents in AI and who had the most patents. And if I recall correctly, I think Microsoft came out either at the top or near the top there. You know, we can use these proxies, but they're not necessarily that useful. I think realistically, all these companies are working on this stuff. Some are going to be better at some aspects than others. I, I do think Google... And Microsoft probably have more investment in this, probably to some extent Facebook as well, than Apple does, at least in terms of productization of stuff that's based on AI and machine learning. But it's absolutely being worked on at all these companies. And really, it's going to take a number of years before we can really tell who's ahead and who's behind here. And really, it comes down to what they do with it, um, you know, how they use that technology to actually improve their products and services. And I know there's been arguments that Apple, you know, aside from the publishing thing, which they've now dealt with, that Apple somehow handicapped because it refuses to collect and store data from its users. But you know, as we heard about in the fall, they use differential privacy now to basically collect that data in a way that's non-personally identifiable and then to digest it and crunch it and apply these techniques to it in the cloud so that they can improve their services. You know that's still a use of AI. They're not barred from doing that because of their privacy stance or anything like that. So I think that argument's also overblown. You know, you can argue Apple. It seems to be doing less with AI or machine learning today, but where they are using it, they seem to be doing it quite well. So I'd I, I hesitate to kind of say anybody's ahead or behind. I think perhaps there are bigger investments in terms of actual productization at some of the other companies perhaps less at Apple, but. Um, even that, I'm kind of hesitant to make a definitive statement about it because we simply don't know all the ways in which this stuff's being used, and all the ways in which products are being worked on today that perhaps haven't even been announced yet. So, it's really a field where there's lots of interesting companies doing lots of interesting things.
1: Well, and I think if anything, that should have us excited, right? Because it means that there are products out there that might make a huge difference in our lives that we don't even know are in, in, in you know, in development. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. for example, you know, Apple's talked a lot about uh, how they're really interested in in augmented reality. Um, not a lot, I guess, but Tim Tim Cook has dropped some thinly veiled hints along yeah. those lines. Um, you know, that obviously is a technology that's going to have to be driven by AI advances. And so, so this has been a fascinating rundown because I think it helps us appreciate that there are a lot of new ways when where this. Um, with this, and I hesitate to call it a single technology, because it's a host of them, where where all these different technologies are going to be showing up in more meaningful ways in our lives.
0: Right. No, absolutely. I think, you know, there's a lot of potential here for for all kinds of improvements. And I mentioned, you know, the medical applications, but there are lots of others as well. And, you know, some really clever stuff that's coming and, and we'll all benefit from that. And that's the good thing about all this. Yeah. All right, well, we'll wrap up the question of the week there and then we'll wrap up our episode with our weekly pick and this time it's Aaron's turn to recommend something to us.
1: So this is a bit of a bandwagon pick and, you know, usually I like to recommend things that I think most people won't have heard about. This is something that I think has probably been on the radar of most people. It's a TV show called This Is Us that plays on NBC. It's available through the NBC app and website and also on Hulu. Um, uh, and in the iTunes store. The reason I'm recommending it is because um, my wife started out early with this show and finally convinced convinced me to get around to watching it and that's, and that's how a lot of us encounter pop culture like stuff like this. Um, I finally got around to watching it and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So the, the basic premise and I don't want to give a lot of detail because there are fun kind of twists as the show progresses but the basic detail is it's about a family and you sort of, and what's but what's really amazing about the family is how the stories is how the story of this family is told in a very intricate way. The characters are great, very inspiring. They address some real issues um, that uh, you haven't seen addressed in um, in a lot of TV shows, um, and so um, like real issues that are that are compelling and interesting. Uh, surrounding, you know, death or, um, well, I, I can't say too much because it, or, or, or um, being overweight is another one that's prominently featured. Um, and uh, so, so I like that aspect, but I think my favorite thing about this show, besides just the characters being really interesting and endearing, is that it's told in a very intricate way. You know, most of these TV dramas are told going forward. So there's not a lot of retrospective there. You might get flashbacks that sort of lay groundwork for a new plot twist. This story of this family is told very differently and I think requires a much more sophisticated way to write a show. Um, There are a lot of moments, the the story is told with a lot of overlaying of the past and the present. And and sometimes whole episodes are oriented just about the past rather than, than what's going on currently in the story. And uh, and the way these details sort of fit together has been really impressive to me, and so I've really enjoyed the show. Um, it has a reputation for making people cry, so beware. <laughs> I, I have a I, I have a coworker who's or a friend I guess who was who said he was watching it at work and he had to he, he had to pretend to look for something under his desk because he was starting <laughs> to tear up and want to get embarrassed <laughs> in front of his coworkers. So anyway, the overall point is that you know this is. Uh, um, this is a great show and it's definitely worth a try. I think you'd enjoy even just the very first episode if you didn't watch anything else because the first episode has a self-contained enough story that it's enjoyable all on its own. So, so yeah, it's called This Is Us. Again, it's an NBC show. You can find it in all the typical places you'd expect. I've been watching it through Hulu, but uh, yeah, great TV show, I highly re- recommend it.
0: Great, okay, well thank you, Aaron. And thanks to all of you for listening as always. Uh, As I mentioned at the beginning, we'll we'll be uh, tinkering with the format a little bit here in the next few weeks. We'll uh, tell you more specifics as we go along, but uh, again, provide feedback to us on this episode on the proposed changes that I mentioned at the beginning. We'd love to hear from you. We want to make sure that you're still getting value out of this, and we appreciate you listening and look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks.